Hello, my name is Claire Heffron and welcome to the Geneva Centre for Security Policy podcast on the latest issues advancing peace, security and international cooperation. The world is now responding to the coronavirus to prevent it from becoming a broader global crisis. But what if there was an international standard for risk management and crisis or incident response? We spoke to Lord Toby Harris, President of the Institute of Strategic Risk Management, and as February marks the working group meetings and first informal preparatory meetings of the Arms Trade Treaty Secretariat in Geneva, we spoke to Domisani Diadler, the head of the Arms ATT Secretariat. Well, my, my name is Toby Harris and I am president of the Institute of Strategic Risk Management and obviously we're very pleased to be here at the Geneva Centre uh, and playing a part in the discussions today. So what is the Institute for Strategic Risk Management? What does it hope to achieve? Well, it's a new institute. It was set up earlier this year with a view to bringing together all the people around the world who are working on delivering strategic risk management. So obviously your next question is, what is strategic risk management? And that's about um, recognising that um, organisations, countries, cities face crises, uh, events, strategic risks, things that, that they can't directly control. So how do they manage them? How do they mitigate the risk of it overwhelming them, but also mitigate the consequences? So that's very much the focus of the work. And what we want to do is to bring together the expertise that exists around the world and harness that so people can support each other and make sure that ideas flourish. Right, that sounds wonderful. What is an example of a crisis or an event? Are we talking natural disasters, pandemics? Are all of those uh, things that you are also looking at? Well, it can be a natural Mm -hmm. disaster. Mm -hmm. So you've got floods today in Venice. Uh, You've had water shortages in South Africa. Um, We have floods in the north of England today. All of these are things that can overwhelm a community uh, and require planning for. Or it can be a pandemic, or it can be the consequences of climate change, but it can also be very specific shocks. It could be a cyber attack on your infrastructure. Um, It could be a terrorist incident. These are things which can be uh, collectively very damaging and collectively overwhelming. So how do you as a community, as a society, as a business, plan for something which is unexpected, which you're, you're not, uh, is certainly not business as usual, how do you make sure you get back to business as usual, get back to normality or as near to normality as you can as quickly as possible? So this is affecting governments or companies, all of the above? Uh, I think you can see it at a whole number of levels. Yes, of course, it can, be, it can be nation states, it can be a city, it can be a region, or it can be a business, it can be a global business, a small business. Often the small businesses are the ones who are least protected uh, because they haven't got the wider infrastructure. So how do they cope if everything in their street disappears? And perhaps we can also take it down to the individual level. How do we, as uh, in terms of our own households, manage in the event of some catastrophic shock to the infrastructure on which we all depend? Absolutely. So why now? Where has this been before? Why hasn't it happened before? Um, has it just been a matter of time or the right people? Uh, why now? I think why now is perhaps uh, we're all becoming conscious that the world is an increasingly risky place. Uh, and maybe some of the norms, some of the feelings of stability 
that have been around in the past are beginning to diminish. So this, I think, is the right time. And I think what we've had is we've been able to bring together some key people to start to thinking in these terms and say, hey, why don't we harness this global network of practitioners who are really thinking and working on this at the moment? So you're here in Geneva for the Crisis 2030 Are We Ready conference, the first of its kind. Um, looking at crisis management, risk management from a 360 degree perspective, if you may, uh, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I think it's looking at all the, the, the huge variety of things that could be going to happen and overwhelm us over the next uh, uh, 10 to 15 years. Uh, climate change very much on people's minds, but the increasing nature of uh, hybrid attacks, asymmetric warfare, um, plus the, all the other natural disasters that can befall us. So you've got all of that going on, but I think it's also about looking at it from every perspective. So governments will have a perspective, businesses will have a perspective, the public will have a perspective. It's making sure that all of that is embraced in looking at how you manage a crisis, how you manage a, a major risk. Diversity is a reality for most of us, but is it an asset? The evidence is clear. Across public and private sectors, diverse teams are more effective. At a time when we need to collaborate more to advance peace, security and sustainable development, we need to work together better. I am Fleur Hayworth and I am course director for leveraging diversity to increase performance. At the Geneva Centre for Security Policy, diversity is a part of our DNA. We bring together participants from around the world and across sectors to learn, exchange and grow. We help them to apply inclusive leadership practices that enhance team performance. This one-day intensive course is designed specifically for current and aspiring team leaders who want to get the best out of their colleagues. Come to challenge your assumptions and discover ways to overcome bias. Learn about group norms that enhance team performance and collective intelligence and apply practices that build trust, respect and bridges within your team. Take a moment out of your busy schedule and join us in Geneva. The Arms Trade Treaty Secretariat works to promote responsibility in international transfers of conventional arms. Earlier, we spoke to Dumasani Diadler, the head of the Arms Trade Treaty Secretariat. Firstly, what is the function of the Arms Trade Treaty? ATT Secretariat um, is established to assist uh, state parties in the effective implementation of uh, the treaty. In assisting state parties in, in implementing the treaty, we carry out uh, specific functions which are set out in Article 18 of, uh, of the treaty. And these functions in, include, amongst others, the following. The maintaining a database of uh, national points of contact for information exchange under the treaty. Maintaining the reporting system under the ATT. Facilitating the work of conferences and meetings that, uh, that are conducted conducted under, under the ATT and in doing so we, we, we therefore provide support to the president of conference, to the bureau which are structures established under the ATT, to the working groups as well as the chairs who are facilitating those uh, working groups. In addition to that we also uh, facilitate the, the matching offers and assistance 
as, as contemplated under Article 18 of, uh, of the Treaty. We also serve as the administrator of uh, the Voluntary Trust Fund, which is the facility established to support states in the implementation of uh, the, the obligations under, under the Treaty. In summary, these are, are, are the functions that we conduct as a Secretariat. They can be summarized into three categories. Uh, there's one category that deals with administrative responsibilities. The second category is about the, the policy substantive support to the ATT process. And uh, the third category could be the administration of the voluntary trust fund. So these are the three streams that uh, we, we, we support as the ATT. What benefits do countries have in joining the ATT? The treaty came into force in December 2014. So we have been in operation for about three years now. In the three years of existence, we observe that we have uh, quite a number of states that are engaged in the in the treaty and which are also participating in the work of, of the ATT. At this point in time, we have uh, 94 state parties and uh, we also have uh, 41 states that have uh, signed the treaty. And if you look at these numbers, you, you can realize that these are pretty impressive numbers, but we are not complacent by these numbers. We understand that for the treaty to be truly universal, we still require to have as many as many states come on board as reasonably possible. But if you make an assessment of uh, the number of states that are involved, you, you just realize that a number of states are starting then to, to, to implement the provisions of the treaty. The composition of uh, the membership of the ATT comprises of uh, states that have a well-established export, uh, export control system as well as those that have just uh, just uh, just come to, to the export control world. So those are at a stage of uh, implementing the controls under, under, under the treaty. But our assessment as a secretariat uh, is that the treaty is indeed becoming, becoming much more effective as, as we move forward. And as we are beginning to see, states are starting to export as well as import arms, and, uh, and in the process of doing so, they apply the provisions of the treaty. We make this conclusion on the basis of uh, the reports that we receive from time to time from, from states as contemplated under the treaty. So we are quite happy that the treaty is moving forward. As we move forward, I think the level of implementation would consolidate. And what role does civil society play in the arms control processes? Civil society organizations are important uh, stakeholder or uh, an important uh, player in the ATT. They play a very important role in promoting the, the objectives of the treaty, firstly. And they are also playing a very important role in supporting states in implementing their, their obligations under, 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 under the treaty. And if you look at uh, the, the mandating documents of the ATT, they recognize the role of, uh, of uh, civil society organizations. As an example, the rules of procedure recognize that civil society must can participate. In, in the work of the conference of our state parties and other meetings of the AET team. And at the same time, within the Voluntary Trust Fund, there are rules that allow for civil society organizations to, to participate in the implementation of uh, those VTF projects. So we are indeed uh, seeing these organizations as, as quite important to, 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 to the process. As the treaty uh, process is moving towards substantive treaty implementation, we, we realize that the, the focus of our civil society is beginning to, to move gradually towards supporting states in implementing the provisions of the treaty, through supporting states in implementing, the, as an example, the voluntary trust fund projects. And, and we're happy then to, to observe that there is indeed partnership that is starting to form between states as well as uh, civil society. And moving forward, we are very optimistic that this kind of uh, relationship will continue and uh, it can be sustained for the better good of, uh, of the treaty. And finally, what factors does the ATT implement in its treaty? 
The implementation of the treaty is dependent on quite a number of factors. And some of these factors, I would mention just, uh, just uh, but, but, but a few. One, it's dependent on the political will of states. Two, it's dependent on, on, on capacity of individuals that are involved in the process. And thirdly, it's dependent uh, on the ATT setting up a right agenda for states as well as all other stakeholders to, to, to engage. I therefore consider the GCSP cause as a course that is aimed at creating capacity within officials who are involved in the implementation of the treaty by helping them to better understand the content of the treaty as well as its implication. Because once we have a heightened level of understanding of uh, these two aspects of the treaty, the likelihood of effective treaty implementation is, is actually great. So we, we consider the GCSP course as very important as helping us to create uh, this, uh, this capacity among states. Because as officials are coming through the course, as they go back to the capitals or go back to their missions, their capacity to firstly engage at the current debate of the ATT here in Geneva and elsewhere, as well as their capacity to implement the treaty at a national level, is basically is basically heightened. So I was observing the the composition of uh, the participants in this course, and, and many of them are officials who are playing or who are holding very key positions where they come from. And, and it's important, therefore, for us to continue to ensure that those who hold positions that will actually advance the object of, uh, of the treaty are actually capacitated accordingly. And I consider then the, the GCSP course as very important in that endeavor to actually build capacity of our treaty implementation. Well, that's all for today's podcast for the GCSP. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Lord Toby Harris for joining us, along with Dumasani Diadla. Join us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Until then, bye for now.